This is episode 369 of the AWS podcast, released on May 17, 2020. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Welcome back to the AWS Podcast. I'm Alicia here with you. Great to have you back. And I have a super special guest today. I'm joined by Teresa Carlson, who's Vice President of Worldwide Public Sector here at AWS. Welcome to the podcast, Teresa. I am so thrilled to be here, Simon. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you for coming on board. It's been a a long-time goal for us to have you on the podcast because I think you have... uh, uh, some perspectives that are going to be super interesting for our listeners. And um, you know, I'm fortunate that, that you and I go way back to the very, very start. But um, I, I think there's some stories to tell here. And I guess, you know, maybe let's start with the start. Is that you, you joined AWS to lead public sector back in 2010, which you know, 2020 now feels like an eternity ago. What was your motivation and vision for what AWS could do for public sector? Like, why, what were you thinking at that time? Well, you are correct. It does seem like dog years for sure, which is for the folks who don't know that it's seven years for every one year. So it would be 10 times, 10 times seven. So some days it feels very much like it's, it's been that long, but at the same time, it's felt very, very fast because mm-hmm. technology moves at the speed of light. It really is amazing what we've done at AWS over the last 10 years to respond to our customers and their needs. But 10 years ago, well, over that now, but when I first met Andy Jassy, I, I like to tell the story because when I met Andy, we really talked about how governments around the world needed the opportunity to have the same kind of innovative and modern technology as any startup had, uh, as any small business or individual. So we really talked about how AWS could help transform and bring this new type of technology into government to help them move faster, have that agility they needed, respond to the citizen services, uh, and also just a, a couple of things that I always talked about then after that, Simon, with my team, uh, but Andy and I talked about one early on, which was making the world a better place. And it may sound a little, uh, you know, a little like naive to say that, but we really did have a conversation about with the right technology offering the right solutions to our government, our citizens, our children, our students out there, we could really help make the world a better place. And then later on, when I got my team up and running, we kind of added on top of all of our amazing Amazon leadership principles, we always talked about in public sector that as a team, we were paving the way for this disruptive innovation to make the world a better place. And I would say now more than 10 years in, I'm, I'm you know, we have a lot to do still, but I'm very pleased at the progress we've made the response of our customers and partners and how we have been able to do really amazing things, you know, better, faster, less expensive with our technology to do just those things, pave the way for disruptive innovation around the world and really truly help to make the world a better place with the things that we're doing with that technology with our customers and partners. And I think it's interesting, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, I think that that phrase is, is often overused by folks, but one of the things that, um, you know, I like to say when, when candidates are interviewing for our team, because I'm, I'm in your team as well, uh, is is that we do the kind of work that you're really happy to talk to someone at a barbecue about to say, hey, this is what I do. This is what I work with uh, for, for your experience as a citizen. Like, wow, that's really interesting. So there's, there's kind of that genuine uh, output that is really, really relevant to what customers are doing. 
Yes, it truly is. And the thing that has been for me really interesting about starting and building this business is the individuals that we that we've brought on board and really have been the building blocks on top of our amazing cloud services are the individuals that are serving our customers and partners every day that have such amazing passion for going out there and really helping them do the things they do and, and get through it. And I joke a little bit, but I do like to say that, you know, doing work in the public sector is not for the faint of heart. You have to uh, really have a desire. Yeah. I mean, it, it's true, right? You have to have a desire and, and a love for going out and doing these things that can really help your government, which by the way, then helps the citizen services efforts. It helps everything from your election process to be better, to the way you distribute or collect taxes, to the way you demonstrate, you know, education. Uh, where are the schools? Where are the hospitals? Where are the parks? Uh, safety, d- disaster management. I mean, it can do all of those things to help the citizens uh, so much more in their families. So by helping the government, you do actually ha- help the people of every community. And I think that is what the individuals we've hired that work with our customers and partners really have a passion for doing. And what are some of your favorite stories or examples of uh, how governments are improving that citizen experience using AWS? What are some of the things that really leap out at you? Well, there, there's so many really, really great ones, but one that is kind of, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's an older story, I'll say, because we did it really early, but I've, I've told it, but I'm going to tell it again because I think it kind of demonstrated something we were able to prove out very early on that fast forward today in the crisis we're in with COVID-19 is helping in ways we didn't even think of then. And, and the story I'm going to tell real quickly is in 2011, we started getting a lot of researchers coming to us telling us that they were using cloud computing to do their research and that uh, cloud helped their research uh, go further, faster, and was a lot less expensive. And they could, you know, kind of store it and use that compute power and knowledge and analytics around it. But they said uh, when they got grants from the government that the grants were many times uh, they had a lot of restrictions around them, which you had to show that you were buying servers because if you didn't show you were buying servers, uh, they felt you weren't actually doing true mm-hmm. research. <laughs> and so we we had to, I know it's kind of interesting now today, but we've worked really hard now over the years to change that. And that we've done many interesting things with many governments now around the world with this. But one of the things we said in 2011 is if we could put some data sets on AWS and open them up where people can take advantage of them, crowdsource on there, those data sets, use them for their research, uh, for their education, for their own uh, independent investigation. Uh, So what we did, we took a data set back then, which kind of seems very outdated today, but was the first 1,000 genome, which was the first really mapped genome, which if you go back in history, that was very painful. It cost a lot of money and it took a really long time. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was at the National Institutes of Health in the, in the U.S. And we went and we took a copy of that. Um, we took a copy, we put it in our AWS cloud data centers on our own dime, 
and open those, open that up. And in the first week, we had over 3,400 new researchers independently come to that data and start using it. We were just blown away. Back then, we thought it was just, you know, like, wow. And now, if you look back, there's been lots and lots of research studies written about that. And one of the ways that was possible is they had access to it through the cloud. And you couldn't have gotten to it prior unless you had a lot of money and you had data centers and you could afford to move that, make a copy of it and um, give it access to the right people. So that is one example, Simon, where we took a data set, we opened it up and it exploded. And it, what it did was it put a level playing field out there that allowed ind individuals, think about it, individual, if you're at a community college, a small university, or the largest, you had access and you could go begin to use that. And we we did it for free. We, we did it on our own dime and we uh, we opened it up, and now we've done that for many, many, many data sets, and we actually have a whole program today where we put data sets out there that are highly curated for our customers to come to and take advantage of, and we continue to put those out there so we can open it up. And I do kind of like to say that cloud computing can be a great equalizer of things because for things that weren't possible for uh, an individual is very possible today when it comes to everything from doing research to creating a new company even and being an entrepreneur because you have access to the technology in ways you hadn't done it before. So oh. that's one way and just another, yeah, another just quick one, uh, Singapore, which I think has done an amazing job as a country utilizing technology. You know, they're, they're, they're a piece of artwork themselves. They're kind of a big city in a country, but the way they keep that city country operating has always been a phenomenon to me. But they, but they use technology as an example. They have a, a, an app called One Singapore where you can come and they have multiple agencies or government groups work together to put information on there so citizens can go find where's the school, where's the park, when's the transportation app, where is the transportation, all the holidays. It's kind of a, a lot of information pulled together so that citizens can access it in one space, which uh, didn't happen for a long time. So those are just two kind of quick examples, I think, of where uh, cloud computing has really made a difference. Yeah, the, the change is remarkable. And Andy Jassy often observes that there's no compression algorithm for experience. So maybe can I ask you how the conversations that you're having with leaders in 2020 compare to those you were having back in 2010? Oh, my gosh, that's such a good question. Uh, it's changed so much. And I, I have worked for another large tech company in the US federal government. So I was very versed in talking to government leaders and regulators and policymakers. And in the early days, I, I kind of tell a funny story. We hired our first public policy lead, Shannon Kellogg, and he and I, in the early days, we started Simon in the US because we felt like at a U.S. company, even though we're in an international company, a global company, we felt for cloud, it was such a new technology that if we couldn't get the U.S. government to embrace it, we would struggle in other countries. So we did start with my business in the U.S. government space and federal. And we would go to the Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and I knew a lot of the policymakers. And when we would go in, they wanted to know if we were there 
talk about books or taxes. <laughs> and I said, neither. <laughs> We're here to talk about cloud computing. And they're like, what's cloud? And uh, they did not know, you know, what cloud computing was, but that that's not just them. It was it was really not known to a lot of people. It was very young and new technology back in 2010, 2011. It was just getting going, and most people really didn't understand it and what it meant and what it was going to mean for the way that the world was uh, going through this complete digital transformation shift. But if you fast forward today, you know they understand what cloud computing is, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. like the whole conversation, conversation has changed. <laughs> Exactly. And and I would say the other big thing that's changed is the conversations on how we work with legislators and policymakers on one, understanding their concerns, which we always did from the very beginning and our customers, which in the early days was always about security. Uh, and today, of course, it's still about security, but there's many other things on their mind, like how do they acquire? How do they build a resilient application? You know, the conversation's way moved uh, beyond just, hey, we can't use cloud because we, we're worried it's not secure. We spent a lot of time helping them understand it was secure and how they could even use tooling based on their needs to even add more controls mm. at, at um, you know, different levels of security that would be required. But, but we now talk about, Simon, some things that are, I think, a little more exciting, like, you know, how can we help in a state or a country or a local community with technology skills that help increase the average income of the individual in that community? So when we kind of go into a place now, we really do try to go in and, and as a partner and that partner means not selling your, you know, your customer something, but really being a partner with them and taking the time to explain and help build a roadmap how it was going to be critical, is critical for them to be, you know, a digital community, a digital nation, because that's the way the world was moving. And they needed the right skill set. They needed the right curriculum. They needed the right policies. They needed to create a community of entrepreneurs and startups. They needed to um, help figure out how they got capital into that. So when we go in today, we have much richer conversations just about let's build a digital community or a digital nation and let's figure out what's needed here. And of course, when you go around the world, some places are just a lot more mature in their journey than others. And some are, you know, still just thinking about it today, but everybody, everybody wants to talk about it and everybody has an interest in how they get going to start building that out in the proper way. Yeah, it's, it's definitely come a long way in the, uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, speaking of advances, I guess one of the things that, that AWS has been doing for its customers is, investing a great deal in space uh, using things like AWS GroundStation and you touched on things like the registry of open data on AWS to store huge amounts of data that's related to space and the planet, et cetera. Why have these investments been made on behalf of our customers and what are some of the outcomes you've seen? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Of course, our founder at Amazon, Jeff Bezos, has a passion for space. And I always found it so interesting from day one of me starting, I found so many of our service leaders and individuals who work in our, they're like, you know, they're, they're, 
their space nets, you know, anything about <laughs> space. space. So I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Because I had NASA and I had the all of, I had, you know, tens of other space agencies. And what I've seen now over the years is a big change in how, you know, in how both we thought about bringing innovations into the space and satellite world, as well as creating the right partnerships around that. And for us, you know, our customers now, when they are driving mission capabilities, so if you take a Ministry of Defense or a Department of Defense or an intelligence community, or if you think about things like food security and sustainable agriculture as another area, our customers are now utilizing satellite and space technologies in new ways, everything from putting new satellites up to drone capabilities and thinking about how do they move that data faster? How do they store and process that data? And how do they do uplinks and downlinks from those satellites in a way that moves faster with security built in? So that's kind of what we did with our ground station. It was our first solution where we said, let's think about how we go out, in addition to all of our other you know, storage and compute and analytics, what are other tools that we could begin to create and launch that help our customers who are moving more rapidly into modernizing their uh, aerospace and defense and just satellite capabilities in general? And that we, so you saw us kind of launch, it was two years ago now, it'll be two years uh, this November that we launched our first ground station, AWS ground station. Uh, and that is where we can uh, take the antennas, we have our own antennas, or we can work with other partners with their antennas, like a Lockheed uh, or a geospatial company that uses a lot of that satellite data. And we can help that data move a lot faster and we can help them quickly analyze and process that so they can get to the mission capabilities they need a lot more. But, but I would say, Simon, uh, we're, not even, we're not even scratching the surface on the capabilities uh, that cloud computing can support. And I've heard people talk about even the example of uh, if you are going to have a world someday where space will really be the new frontier where we uh, live and work, you know, or you're traveling to space, you want that same experience that you would have that Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime streaming. You want to be have that same experience. And the way those things are going to happen is a world where you can utilize cloud computing at scale and speed. So that's kind of what, what we hope. So at the at the mission level, it would be helping our defense, intelligence, and you know, other government. Uh, ministries or agencies with their focus on satellite and uh, aerospace services to more more commercialized capabilities that we could think of using um, in, in everyday life. So it's pretty exciting. And we just built out a new vertical team within my business that we're going to be focusing worldwide now with uh, on space and satellite, both solutions and partnerships. And it's interesting what that opens up. We recently ran a, a hackathon uh, with the South Australian government and with Deloitte uh, using data from AWS Ground Station and other, other sources as well. And it was really interesting watching them use the perspective of space to solve for things like uh, food security or recovery from bushfires or preventing bushfires through monitoring of power lines, et cetera, using 
these data sets that, as you mentioned, were, were just out of reach before. Like you just couldn't get them. And suddenly you've got folks working together in a hackathon using this high-quality data. I, I think that's so interesting because, of course, you live in Australia, and Australia just went through so much of their fires. It was just devastating. And, you know, I love that because you think of the idea of where you can take and help Australia solution much more rapidly because like every other disaster, you have to now begin for the next one to hit. And if there's something we could do now that could help, as an example with Australia, fight those fires faster, uh, more safely, and be able to uh, have solutions that help extinguish them, that, that's amazing. Um, but, but on the food security side, you make another really good point. I was in India not that long ago, and I was blown away because in India, nearly 75% of families there depend on agricultural income. And that was mm. according to them. And I, the World Bank had said the same thing. I mean, 75%. That's huge. So I, I got to meet with the, it's huge. And I met with the Minister of Agriculture. And then I found out that we had over 40 startups there on precision farming and agriculture. But if you dig into a lot of those startups, it was kind of amazing because they were using a lot of aerospace and satellite technologies to try to solution what they were doing, but also take advantage of that data that they hadn't been able to get to in the past. So that was really interesting. So again, if you think about how you think about disease, crops, weather, you know, even model out now today, there's so many of these tools that you can put together to solve problems for today and project for the future. And I think these are going to become really important, are important today, and will become more important as we get these governments up and running and new companies that can really understand and take advantage of these technologies faster. Indeed. So, Teresa, what are some of the common perceived barriers you hear related to cloud adoption? And what's the ground truth that you share with customers? Well, on an international basis, we've, we've kind of seen a very similar trend, which is uh, data sovereignty, data residency. That has been by far uh, number one internationally uh, was the biggest issue that we've always faced. And we responded to that really quickly, Simon, where we for, you know, uh, years now since, uh, you know, we started AWS in 2008, we, we've now continued to build and launch regions around the world. In fact, we just launched uh, the Italy region today, we announced. That's right, in Milan, yeah. And uh, this past, yeah, we just had, yeah, we just uh, launched in Milan and they, they've been, of course, devastated by COVID-19. And we were so honored to be able to go ahead and launch that region in the midst of all this uh, and hopefully get them going with even some new technology solutions. We just launched uh, last week in South Africa. So we continue to launch th these regions around the world. In fact, I was, when we launched our region in Australia, I was there for that launch, uh, which is a lot of fun. That was, <laughs> was that was great. now 2012. 2012, is that right? that's right, 2012. Yeah, 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 it was a lot of fun. It was actually my first trip ever to Australia. 
And I remember, Simon, I didn't think it was like my third trip there. I finally saw a kangaroo and I finally said, I don't think you guys actually have kangaroos because <laughs> I kept going back and forth to meetings. And finally, I got to see and I was amazed. So I was very excited to get to see a kangaroo. But uh, we, we got we got we launched in Australia and that was super exciting back then. And look at where Australia is. It's grown like like crazy. But we've really addressed the data sovereignty, data residency issues by continuing to build regions around the world. And we've always said, you know, in the fullness of time, you know, who knows how many, but we're not slowing down any. We have a very rich roadmap of regions that we're launching. We even have built some specialty regions for some government customers based on their needs. So we continue to get uh, more agile in what we're doing and how we're doing it based on customer request and demand. We've launched tools like Outpost and our edge location services to respond to and wavelength that will be important when it comes to 5G. So these kind of things that helps a, a government uh, have the tooling they need where they need it. So data residency, one big thing. The other issue that we faced a lot was just pure security. And in the early days, I would say security even came up as much as data residency uh, and we, we really have been super aggressive about addressing that, but in a thoughtful way. And what we did to address that, Simon, we would, we would really work with customers and say, tell us your concerns exactly. And then one by one, we would address those concerns. So we, we didn't take it personally. We knew cloud computing was a new technology that they, we wanted them to embrace and we wanted them to feel good about it and come kind of with us but answering all their questions to be able to get to cloud. So one by one. And then the other thing we've done is we made sure that we can, we pass or exceed every security and compliance regime that's out there uh, around the world. So if a country has one or if there's one for financial services or health, we make sure that we work with the certifiers, the creditors and the customers to, um, you know, pass or exceed all of those compliance and security barriers. The third big area I would say is acquisition or buying for customers. You know, so many were so used to buying capital expense with IT versus operating expense. And cloud computing is more in the operating expense side. Although we've, we've been flexible with customers to try to help them have a model uh, with us that fits their needs. But we really want our customers to only pay for what they use and buy on demand or in a in a model like a reserved on demand that makes sense for their needs. So that's another. And then I would say the last, uh, which is probably, uh, well, two more, but these kind of fit in the same area, is talent and culture. Mm. And we still lack talent today there's not enough talent because the speed of cloud computing is moving so fast. We still don't have the talent out there. So we've invested a lot in the talent. We have over uh, 400 online courses uh, that you can take today. We work with colleges and universities and high schools to bring in AWS Educate and AWS Academy to help make sure that we are actually getting the most modern curriculum into the universities and high schools and colleges. But talent and then culture is kind of that thing that is very hard to break and it takes leadership to overcome it. 
And when I say that, I mean, you need a strong leader that knows and is passionate about that they've got to drive change and update and modernize systems and build new applications. And you really need good, strong leaders to come in and just say, we're making this change. Here's the timeline and we're going to do it. Yeah. And because, you know, um, especially in government, it can be easy for them to be complacent because it, this is just comfortable and they oftentimes don't like to risk anything. But the problem is if they're not moving faster, there's so much more the risking now by not moving. Cybersecurity, uh, defense capabilities, um, you know, data that they so desperately need, you know, storage that is reasonable in price and their ability to get to it, manage it. So there's so much more at risk today if they don't modernize. And I think COVID-19 has been an example of in a lot of countries and cities and states, their, their systems were not modernized and it just led to a lack of scale or their ability to quickly add new features or capabilities to, res to respond to what was needed. Mm -hmm. Now, Teresa, you travel the world, or when we're allowed to travel the world, you travel the world meeting with customers. In fact, I absolutely do not envy your travel schedule. It's uh, pretty insane. But uh, which countries have impressed you most as being future-looking in terms of their technology strategy? Um, you know, and I will I will say there's there's really not been a country that I've gone to that I've just not really enjoyed and every year I, when I go, I really try to embrace the culture in every country and learn from them. And there are there have been a few that I've been really impressed. I talked about one earlier. I'm, I'm really impressed with Singapore. It's it's a small but busy and complex nation with, you know, ports. And it's just an easy place to be because of how agile they've been with their use of technology. And how when they when they're ready, uh, it's very seamless. It, it took them a while on some fronts, but I've seen them just kind of move fast. You know, the UK government, I think, moved really fast. They actually did some super innovative things four or five years ago, where they actually really started moving toward cloud native. And if you talk to a lot of the leaders there, they used to have about ten vendors that got 90% plus of all their IT budget. And they were not getting a lot of innovation. They did not have small and medium businesses or startups really work in the government. And they basically transformed and changed that entire model. And today they are they moved quite fast. And they think about technology even in ways, sometimes I get excited, like, like even training, they, they talk a lot about doing that, you know, via online learning and not doing a lot of classroom. Like they're really trying to think through new ways to bring even learning to their, their workers. And this was pre-COVID. So I'm really impressed with the, what they've done. And they also have a cloud procurement model that they drive, that they update like every six to nine months where they continue to add new vendors and can add new capabilities. And it's pretty agile. They kept updating it over the years. And so that way the government has a very broad set of tools and uh, service providers that they can choose from. And you just have to meet their criteria. And I think that's actually pretty cool. 
I would say, you know, I, I, I would say the U.S. in pockets has done a really good job. But there's other areas that they, you know, they have been laggards, but I would say the U.S. has done a good job. And then you, and then we're beginning to see smaller countries like Bahrain in the Middle East who totally change their, their policies, uh, the way they're doing curriculum. They change telecommunications policies uh, to, to have cloud computing, AWS, come into the country and they do innovative things. Even they pay if a if a Bahraini citizen gets a AWS certification, they pay for that fully. Because the one thing they said is, look, we're a small country. We can't be dependent on oil. We want to find new ways uh, to bring in business. So they kind of become a little tech hub, and they wanted to do it really fast. And they said, if we're going to do that, we have to have talent. So you know. I thought that was so creative where they said, we're just going to pay. We want to incentivize them to go out and be trained and educated mm. in, uh, in cloud computing. So I think, you know, so those are just some really good example, but there are a lot of countries now making progress. So the ones I didn't talk about, there are a lot. We, we've gone from zero to a hundred in the last two and a half years, I would say with many countries. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty incredible. Now it, it has been a trying time for most of us around the globe due to COVID-19 and particularly our education and government customers have, have really been challenged to scale to keep pace with demand. How have you stayed connected with them given that you can't travel? And, and what have you been hearing from our existing and, and many of our new customers? Well, I will tell you I've been super surprised at how much we've gotten done working from our home environment. I was I was very skeptical when we started doing this, and you, you know you have to make sure your teams are taken care of. You you know if your teams are not being taken care of, they're going to have a hard time making sure the customers are well taken care of. So, you know I would say we we had to first make sure our team was comfortable and had the tools they need, and we very rapidly started reaching out to our customers around the world with the uh, support of our public policy team. Because a lot of countries were in crisis, just like, you know, Simon, when you all had the fires, you, you all have done a good job managing COVID-19, you in New Zealand, uh, by the way. But but when you're in crisis, sometimes it's hard to pick your head up and say, totally. oh my gosh, what else could I be doing? So we really tried to take and are still taking an approach with our customers, you know, to just say, we are here, we're helping hands. What What can we do? And we, we actually have gotten amazing response around the world from our customers saying we really could use some help. And, you know, so what we did is we started saying, okay, what do you need? What do you need? And of course, we've seen everything from them needing uh, help with setting up uh, just basic systems to call centers has been a big thing where government governments are like, we've got to connect with our citizens quick. So, you know, using a cloud-based call center like Connect, AWS Connect, you can set it up in hours, not days, and you're ready to go. Yeah. And I think our customers have been pretty blown away, as an example, by what they've been able to do there. And then we've been working in partnership with some of our partners to just reach out to do broad, massive analysis with them on what is happening. How many beds do you have in hospitals? How many people have you had tested? Uh, how many healthcare workers do you have in what location? Do, are you seeing movement of certain COVID 
uh, activity going on. So again, every country is different and they have different requirements. But what we did as a team, Simon, is we shared uh, together between international and U.S. everything we saw and we learned and what our customers were saying. And from that, we, we, I think we moved and have been trying to move really, really fast in setting up the right services and solutions and just being super responsive. And I think that is the key. Our customers need to know and understand that we are here to help and be responsive and not overburden them because they can't do more. They need real help, not somebody trying to sell them something. And, and I would say, I think a really great way, we also work very closely on the AWS side with our retail counterparts to do some activities together that help streamline getting services and goods out to governments, uh, educational institutions, teachers, and uh, those very critical supplies and tests that they needed uh, COVID test. So I, I, I'm excited that we had that opportunity to even more work more closely with our retail team to give our customers a seamless experience versus them having to deal with multiple folks at multiple times. But we still have a lot to do, Simon. We're not we're not out of the woods on this. Governments, the, the one thing that unfortunately has come out of this a bad way is again the lack of cybersecurity. Uh, a lot of ransomware attacks, a lot of nation state attacks, uh, hackers, because systems are not secure, uh, a lack of modernized systems in a lot of U.S. states where their, you know, their ability to do unemployment claims, uh, the systems failed. Uh, just a lot of systems are not modernized. So it also, sh you know, shines a really bright light on everything that we still need to do and help our customers do to have those systems that help the citizen back to our earlier conversation and support moving much faster and, and securely. And, and I think you're right. I think that, that scalability piece is, has been a theme I've seen throughout with a lot of the engagements we've been having here in Australia and New Zealand where you know, suddenly a whole bunch of kids who typically learn at school are now learning from home. Uh, government systems are being used yes. in different ways. And, and, and the fundamental part of that is, is being secure but also being elastic. And, and elastic in a way that you're not committed. And it's it's interesting, you know, we, we, we talk about, about that a lot with customers, but I think they're getting a different appreciation of what elasticity means in a crisis, which is you've got to be able to go like real big so you can serve your, your, your citizens really effectively. Well, yes. And in fact, like it, Los Angeles Unified School District, which is one of the largest in the world, we transitioned 700 students quickly to remote learning. We work with groups in the Middle East like, Alaf Education, which is a really amazing fast ed tech company in the Middle East, uh, you know Blackboard, who immediately, I mean their business, you know, quickly went to all online, you know, Elucian, Pearson, uh, Schoology, all of our ed tech, you know, partners. I mean, we had to jump in there with them, and they they've been amazing. I'm really, I'm I'm so amazed at all the ed tech partners we have and how quickly they responded to the needs of the customers. And the students, which I think we, we don't know how that's changed. I think we may forever see that changed. And it was interesting, you know, in Australia, we actually worked uh, there, Simon, which I was really proud of, uh, with on the COVID Safe app that helps automate and process contact tracing, which your prime minister talked about. And I think that is an example of, again, where citizens worry about their data and they want to make sure it's in a location uh, where they understand that. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, Teresa, let's let's step outside of work for a moment. What are some of your passion projects? What do you what do you pay attention to when you're not thinking about uh, our, our customers and our team and, and what AWS is doing? You know, I I have to tell you, I do have a passion still for trying to get more young girls into technology and just not not into the actual. They don't have to be hard coders and developers, but I'm trying to get more young girls excited about joining up to be part of the technology workplace. If they want to be a marketer or in sales or, um, you know, if they want to do hard coding and just diversity in general in the technology world. So I still work a lot on that. And then I do a lot of work for -for not-for-profits. The White House Historical Association is something that I've been working on in the U.S., and we try to kind of bring that around the world where, at, you know, always when I was a little girl, I used to think about being able to go to the White House because I'm from a small state in the U.S. called Kentucky, and I never actually thought I'd get to go. My parents were always very involved in politics and the political process, and the first time I ever got to go to the White House, I was just, I was blown away, and I've been blessed now because I've gotten to go a lot to a lot of state homes around the world and they're always so beautiful. But the first time you go to your homeland, that White House, I was like, wow. And so now I've helped the last couple of years we have at AWS by trying to make sure that every child, every person has the ability to tour the White House by doing an app that actually helps you do a walk through the White House. And it's an example of no one should should not have to be able to take advantage of what their love is and see something that that they're passionate about. And now we're trying to bring that to every child and every student. We're also creating curriculum around that. And then the two other things I'll just say, uh, the Red Cross is something that I've helped with a long time, and I'm still very passionate about the Red Cross. And we do a lot at AWS that I'm very proud of around missing and exploited children. Uh, we have lots of partners we work with in this space, like the International Center for Missing and Exported Children, uh, Thorn, Polaris, others, and, uh, you know, getting, stopping that altogether. It's such a horrible thing, human trafficking, but also having technologies that help find those children and adults who've been trafficked and help them get back home and stopping this horrible epidemic around the world. So those are kind of things on the side that I do spend some time on, but I try to make sure they have a technology uh, bent. But since I do also have a not-for-profit group, I'm very blessed because we have so many amazing not-for-profits, Simon, just totally making the world a better place, just totally doing such amazing things, uh, feeding people around the world, uh, helping provide clean water and air, helping make sure we have safe and secure and sustainable agriculture to rescuing and identifying missing and exploited children and getting them back home. So I'm just, a, I'm, it's an honor to be able to work with all the not-for-profits we have. It's, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. And uh, on the on the White House uh, Historical Association, there is an episode 298 uh, that you can hear Dr. Stephanie Tuzinik talking about some of the work that she's done uh, with AWS to to bring that to life, so uh, it's nice to uh, to bring those together. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your perspectives on things. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to hear from you, and uh, we look forward to having you back again. Thank you, son, for having me. Everybody, stay safe. 
Thanks, Teresa. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We do love to get your feedback. Adobe's podcast at Amazon.com is a place for that. And until next time, keep on building.